0: everybody. Welcome to the second episode of No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesom. Hello, Chris. Hey, David. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to be back for episode two. Me too. Uh, Yeah. The first one was a great success. I'm very happy with how that's going. And I'm looking forward to uh, continuing that conversation.
1: Well, let's do it. Um, All right. I thought we, we might start with picking up on two key points that I, I think we we set out with, which I think are, are really interesting and they're important to us both. Um, the first is seeing art, and not just writing, but all art, in terms of exploration, not merely self-expression. I think that's very important to both of us. Um, and when you look at what, you know, I think artists are trying to do, it's often risking the loss of self uh, being part of something bigger, just losing your your sense of self in the work that you're doing. Um, So it's really not about self-expression at all in very pragmatic terms. Um, The other thing which we've launched out on, which I'm sure we're going to return to uh, again and again, is sort of refining operational definitions of what you and I mean by magic which is a very confusing word for a lot of people. They bring a lot of uh, cultural associations and baggage to it. I put forward an idea that magic can be roughly defined as practices and a worldview that promote greater continuity between our personal psyches, our personal physical self, then communal human culture, all the way to the larger and non-human universe so there's a continuity a continuum between those and magic is the promotion of that integration um also i think that we've chose the the title new no country which um when you first mentioned that to me i really love that idea that i think that resonates on multiple levels so there's always something uh to talk about and further refine in that but with all those th- points in mind. Um, it got me thinking about what indigenous people call power points, that sense of centeredness in in very practical physical terms, but also the psychocultural and spiritual. Um, that really resonates with me because I, I, I think almost every piece of art in any medium that I've been working on is is about a search for home in some way. I, I think it's mm-hmm. one of the great themes of art. And this got me thinking about your recent return to a kind of personal coda and the PowerPoint of Oklahoma. And I'm very excited about that. And um, you spoke last time about a little bit about what that means, but I'd like to find out a little bit more about that. You mentioned the colors of Oklahoma this summer, uh, Mm -hmm. the brown and yellow as opposed to the green. Um, And you mentioned the porches of Oklahoma. I'm fascinated by that because uh, two of my favorite writers, uh, which people will be familiar with, I think at least by name, Walker Percy and Truman Capote, you know, they talk about literature uh, at least as a starting point of porch talk, you know, conversations of an intimate, uh, sometimes casual, sometimes very serious nature, which then drift out into the world as either whispers or or tornadoes, to go back to another thing that interests us. So I thought I'd start off asking a little bit more about the colors and the quality of light uh, that yes. you're finding coming home. I think light is really a powerful living thing. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what that means to you?
0: Yeah, so light is definitely an important and powerful thing. I saw a study recently that was framed as a warning to people. but the paper was stating that people become addicted to sun exposure, and that being in the sun for a long period of time leads to a kind of intoxication. It's this very materialist sort of view of things in terms of, you know psychosis and solutionism and making sure that we have everything fixed and you know you want to make sure you don't become addicted to it. And my thoughts when reading that paper were, well, we're supposed to be addicted to the sun. Um, It's the bringer of all life on earth. So it makes sense that you'd have a sort of connection to it when it's coming down on you. So in Oklahoma, the quality of light, when you at first put this to me, I gave it a lot of thought and it reminded me of when I was in high school with my friend Eric and we were uh, sort of walking around our neighborhood, very similarly actually to how I do it now. And there was this moment before uh, the sun was going down. In fact, it was a little bit before that even. But the quality of the sun was what we described as a kind of bright darkness. Um, So I think that the light in Oklahoma, the quality of it is pretty damn pure. And what I'm comparing this to are the cities that I've been to. And I think it's a I think it's a matter of how much smog you're dealing with in any right. particular given place. Um so when you go to LA, LA, the smog in LA is a hyperstitional fourth-dimensional entity, right? Like this the smog is its own creature, its own god in the way that a tornado is. Um Oklahoma does not have that smog. It has great big open skies and it has the quality of light is such that trees feel more high definition than they typically do. And um, there's the kind of um, the, the brightness and the darkness. I think like the way that that works together is that it's the darkness is very prominent because of the light. Now that might not make a whole bunch of sense. Oh, um, well, it does <laughs> to me. But basically it feels like you're looking at the, so it, Anne Lamott has a book called Bird by Bird.
1: Yes, where she's I know, know that well.
0: Yeah, it's well, it's a fantastic book. So every time I get writing again, I like to read Bird by Bird because it's, it's just sort of how I kick up the gears. And she describes looking at uh, the world when you're writing through a one-inch picture frame. So she keeps a one-inch picture frame on her desk. And I love that for writing, but my lived experience of Oklahoma is that you're looking at a movie theater screen. There's no, there's no one inch picture frame about it. Right. Everything underneath a big sky without a whole bunch of buildings blocking the way becomes a kind of widescreen, holistic appearance that comes to you sort of all at once. If you're walking down an Avenue in New York, there's tons of stuff going on. Your attention is pulled this way and that Uh, Oklahoma is much more focused on These sort of holistic, the people who live in it, the houses, the trees, the grass, all of it kind of comes together in a picture in your mind.
1: Would you go so far as to say that that also makes you feel more psychologically embedded and a part of of the physical landscape?
0: I think so. So I was thinking about this earlier, about why I feel so at home in Oklahoma, and I think the first answer, which is very unsatisfying that most people would give is that it's where I sort of grew up. So of course it's where I feel the most secure, but people move away from home all the time.
1: And I'm one we, of them. Yeah, right, absolutely. And,
0: and feel at home in different places. So what exactly is it about that? So I would reverse it in a sense. And I think that Oklahoma feels at home when I'm in it, right? The, the entity that is Oklahoma feels a little bit closer to being complete when I'm there. And my sensation of feeling home is feeling as though I'm fulfilling a role. I'm actually in a place where I'm supposed to be um, in such a way that I'm completing a puzzle or a picture. And so I think that that idea of service, of being in service to the land that you're around and an integral part of it, is what directly leads to a feeling of being at home. Because I can relate this back to being in Portland, which is a beautiful city, it's home to a lot of people, but I never found any sense of purpose. I felt like Portland didn't need me. In fact, when I was talking to my wife about it, I would often describe Portland as feeling very indifferent towards me. And similarly in El Paso, but not as much, I feel like El Paso got something out of my being there and so I began to feel more at home, of course, until COVID hit and I lost my job. And when I lost that job, I lost the role that I was playing in that ecosystem. Right. And So now when I come back here, I still don't have a job, but I'm able to translate what I see here more clearly into words. I'm in a more sort of animist relationality to this sense of place, perhaps because it's where I grew up, or perhaps because this is just the place that I'm supposed to be so that Oklahoma can look at itself.
1: Okay. Listen, can we extrapolate from that a a new uh, or more refined definition of home that it's not literally where one begins? It's not the the spawning ground that we return to. It's a place which is physically located because we're bodies, but psychically accessible to us, where we feel that that we fit in, that we have a contribution to make, um, and that we're we're a living part of the environment, as opposed to uh, a term that you use, you know, in terms of being a tourist. We're not tourists there. We're mm-hmm. we're actually participants in in the landscape and in the mindscape. W- would you agree with that?
0: A hundred percent. So when you think about all the things that home implies, whether that's family, friends, the feeling you get when you pull your car into your garage and walk up your porch and uh, come inside to all the familiar sights and smells and your dog. So uh, the sense of being at home is the sense of constantly being in a sen- in a state of becoming where that is the feeling that's being manifest. If you are a tourist in a place um you're, basic, you, you're absorbing everything around you. So in a sense, you're kind of, taking is the wrong word. I don't want to use too many of these sort of Western ideas, right? But you're more, you are experiencing without it reciprocating. So you're not, uh, the way that I would like to, to go is, so think of New York City, right? Think of the role that Italian-Americans have in creating New York City as as as, a, as their home. So when you have an Italian-American community in, uh, I don't know, let's say Gravesend or something like that. Is that Italian? I don't know if that space is Italian or not. Anyway.
1: Well, many um, parts of Brooklyn we could say, okay? Many, many parts par- of Brooklyn,
0: yeah. So when you think about New York, you think of Italian-Americans. Even the New York accent is very uh, inextricably linked to – these kind of characters and you think about the pizza and the fact that pizza places become almost community centers where people meet up and tell each other hello and interact within their place so new york is as much i mean it's many things it's not just italian but the italianness of new york is a kind of giving back that creates a cycle a cycle of of giving and taking so that the place becomes sustained by the people who are within it now for me personally even if i was italian which i'm not if i were to go there i am within a flow state when i'm in oklahoma i'm in a sense of giving back when i'm in a place like oklahoma when i go to new york i am a pure experiencer now i'm not talking about buying things i'm not talking about being a part of a you know of the of the capitalist flow of that i'm talking about the spiritual flow of being in a sense of place and that to me very distinctly is what separates tourism from a sense of being at home.
1: Right, right. Well, one thing which maybe we can pick up, not so much in this episode, but, but later, which I think is a really important point for everyone, but certainly for, for writers and artists, is to what extent home inoculates us and, and insulates us from greater awareness, and to what extent it offers us a, a, a PowerPoint to become more aware you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes home means, for a lot of people, I think it means what they can take for granted, what they're not alert to. Whereas when they're traveling, um, they have to be more aware of their surroundings. You know, they have to just pay more attention. Um, but I'd like to get back to something else. But you mentioned Portland, and uh, we, we've talked about Brooklyn. You know, you could mention San Francisco, Seattle. i um, got a kind of funny story. My, my sister, who's very educated, well-traveled person who is a university professor. She's based in Seattle. And um, I I mentioned our podcast, and I mentioned, obviously, your background. Um, And she's been to to Norman, Oklahoma, for university business many times. But her first reaction was, oh, Oklahoma seems like an odd place for a writer or an artist or, you know, intellectual to be based. I mean, what (laughs) do you think of that kind of thinking?
0: I understand where it's coming from. I think that when we were in a much less interconnected world, I think that it would make sense that you'd have to go to a place in order to be within the kind of scenes that you would need to be in in order to get to where you wanted to go in a writing career. Um, So that's the kind of answer right off top. But the thing that I think of first is, uh, are you familiar with the band The Flaming Lips?
1: Yeah, yeah. Love them. Okay. Yeah, so they became huge. Oh, they're
0: yeah international superstars, right? And they're from this area, and they never left. They, I'm pretty sure most of them still live around here. Last when I lived here last, I would bump into uh, Wayne Coyne at the comic shop every once in a while. So basically, they never left. And so when they started becoming really big in the late '90s, early 2000s, they were billed as you know Oklahoma Psych Rock. OK, so, I love that. <laughs> yeah. So the Oklahoma is built into what people find appealing about them. Now, think about this. Think about if the Flaming Lips with their weirdo songs, which to me sound very much like Norman, very much like this particular area of Oklahoma. So think about if that band had completely abandoned their roots in Oklahoma and had become another, you know, band in, in L.A., Oklahoma, for instance, or in you L.A., know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that this area in particular has very rich soil for sort of pleasant weirdos to grow in. And I think they would have lost a lot of that if they had severed their connection to the place that they're from, right? So everything that you, I had a doc, I was a huge Lips fan back in the day. So I had a documentary with them in it. And Wayne Coyne was taking, uh, the filmmaker into a Long John Silvers where he had been when it had gotten (laughs) robbed. And he was describing, you know, the robbers telling everybody to get on the floor and him having a gun to the back of his head. And so like this Long John Silvers, which It's probably gone now due to COVID. I can't imagine Long John Silver survived this. But um, (laughs) basically, when he's sort of describing this and and you're taking it through, like that sense of place is inextricable from the band itself. And it translates, whether people realize it or not, into the music. Even if people don't know that they're from Oklahoma, there's something different and off and a little weird about them. It's not the kind of slickly produced pop music that you'll find coming out of LA. And it's not quite the gritty, uh, punk that you might see coming out of like a, a Brooklyn in, in the eighties or nineties or something like that. It's a, it's a very noisy, very strange, very kind of off kilter music that I could see people who live around me starting stuff like that right now. And as a matter of fact, Norman does have a really great music scene, which is indebted to the lips in a lot of different ways. So they're, they're very much uh, sort of patrons of a lot of bands around here. <clears throat> but, but do you see what I'm getting at here? Like, where it's, Oh, it's, I it's totally very do. Thing. Yeah. Okay, I
1: totally good. do. I have a, another friend who, who actually scored a, a, a sublease or whatever we want to call that in an apartment in Manhattan. And, um, she's from Nebraska. And, uh, she said, you know, when I was in New York, it was, there were, there were a lot of great meetings. You could go out to lunch with, you know, this was pre COVID and, you know, there was a lot of, you know, great stimulus. It was all this, you know, tremendous activity, mm-hmm. but she said, I don't, I didn't feel like I had anything to write about. And the moment, uh, she got back to, uh, uh, Omaha, <laughs> which a mm-hmm. lot of people would think is, you know, the last place anything would come out of, which is very unfortunate, unfair, I think. Um, she just lit up, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and there were suddenly things to, that really resonated with her. And obviously the time away um, helps. I think we all need to get, uh, you know, have road trips of the mind at least, you know, and, and, and Mm -hmm. to experience other cultures, um, other environments. I mean, that, that's essential, I think. Uh, And that's one of the, you know, one of the joys of reading and experiencing art is that you can do that without necessarily, uh, moving your physical body. No, but mm. I think that makes makes tremendous sense to me. Um, and it resonates with me in, in you know, crazy Nevada. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I just did this road trip through some really bizarre desert towns and then larger regional centers like Elko, Nevada. Um, I mean, I just felt just, I was taking hundreds of photographs. I just was scribbling in my notebooks. I was drawing, everything was interesting, you know? Um, And I, I think that when we're in places of not just huge urban centers like New York, but places that we think of as being synonymous with uh, culture of the moment, um, Portland, Minneapolis, you know, and I'm not talking about the social unrest that's happening there now. They just seem to me very difficult places to be creative because, you think, well, they have that reputation and that baggage, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I remember that from growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area that there was a sense that, well, the wave had passed, you know? Um, right. The, the cultural momentum had shifted to somewhere else. And a lot of people who have a lot of talent didn't feel like they could make the contribution and be part of the environment in that magical sense that that was possible at one point, you know. Uh, magic moves around. Would you agree with it that? It
0: does a hundred percent. And if you think about a place like New York, which became a tourist hotspot with the gentrification of the two thousand and tens, I think that too much tourism, without enough people at home, begins to act parasitically on the place. So, I think the kind of disnification of places like that. Uh, slowly begin to kill the soul of the city, and so if you think about these, pl- you know, you brought up uh, Minneapolis, and you know, 20 years ago, you know, they had Rhymesayers Records, people like Atmosphere and Brother Ali. It's a very distinct kind of hip hop music that came out of that scene, a, a place that's very, very fucking cold, right? Right. Um, and I think that you know now because of what's going on in terms of social unrest. I think that the, I do think that magic migrates. I do think it does. I think that places, I mean, I haven't been to New York recently, but I'd have to assume that, you know, people are leaving there en masse. And those are the, but those are the tourists, you know, it might actually be good for the city to flush a little bit of that out and get back to having some New Yorkers and, you know, have those people come visit if they want to. That's what I told Rios about when we moved from uh, Portland it's like, you know, we can always go visit this place. And for a week, it's a beautiful place to visit. So many hikes and great places to, to eat. And, and when you're a visitor, sorry, my dog is making some noise here. And so, and so many places to eat. And, uh, and when you're there for just a week, it becomes a place that, or I'm sorry, when you go there to visit for a week, it becomes you become somebody who people want to visit. When you live there, people think there's no real rush, so they'll get around to you when they can. So again, this is not to denigrate being a tourist. Being a tourist is great, but you don't want to be a tourist that is in a place that's other people's homes for too long because you'll start to psychically drain it, which um, I guess I never asked you this, but I am very curious. Where, Where do you feel the most at home?
1: Uh, I've, I've really had that weird experience of feeling home, uh, in a couple of jungle environments in, in Melanesia. Um, and I felt oddly at home for reasons I can't explain beyond, um, you know, the intuitive level, which I think is maybe where, what we're really talking about, um, in, in West Africa. And, um, when I was, uh, teaching in South Africa, I just felt, um, mm-hmm. But when I was in Melanesia, I I started to, uh, there was a moment where um, these people were coming off a dive boat, you know, all these tourists from Japan and Europe and America and a lot of Brits. And um, one of them referred to me as a local denizen, which I loved. I took as a very high compliment. I don't think they Mm -hmm. meant it that way. I think they meant that I'd gone a little bit native and looked like some sort of ragged jungle beach type person. Um <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm 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 cool with that. I'm cool with that because I, I really did feel like I'd broken away. And that, you know, the biggest experience in my life I think was really having that moment of feeling at home, somehow very far away from where I started. You know?
0: Do you think that has something to do with past lives?
1: You know, I've wondered about that. Um, I think that's certainly worth exploring in an artistic sense. I'm not sure where I sit with with the past life idea, but I've certainly had that very strong uh, intuitive experience and in dreams, you know. Um, it could be. I mean, how do we know that it couldn't be, you know? Very yeah, hard to prove that.
0: When I think of – when I see pictures of New York in the 70s, I get this intense feeling of nostalgia that – doesn't really make any sense. I don't get that when I see pictures of France in the 1970s. Also, another place that I felt oddly at home, Rios and I spent um, a month in uh, South Korea. And at one point we went out into the the small towns because we were going to go hike up this mountain to uh, visit the largest Buddha statue in Southeast Asia. And I felt oddly at home there too, although I could be confusing that for the what had to be massive amounts of spiritual energy. I mean, this was a place where the legend goes a dragon ascended into heaven, and so take that however you want. But it felt like a very powerful place. So it's entirely possible that that's what I was picking up on there. But yeah, those those would be the two places. I wouldn't want to live in New York now. I don't get the same feelings when I'm when I'm visiting there now.
1: But I don't I feel either. Something,
0: uh, yeah, I feel something for those pictures and you know the really dirty, grimy subways with graffiti. And, you know, the, the idea of living in this kind of urban jungle, uh, where you could be stabbed at a moment's notice, something about that, none of that sounds appealing to me. I do not want to be stabbed, (laughs) Right. but, but but it feels like there's a connection there that I'm, you know, that I can't really put my finger on. So we talk about past lives, uh, uh, later, but, um, yeah, I guess, uh, that's what I have to say about that.
1: <laughs> well, um, getting back to Oklahoma, you know, it makes me think... I mean, I, I had that, um, for me, a very spiritual moment I mentioned in our, our first uh, podcast about going to the the town of Hydro, Oklahoma, which was a... Well, it, it's still sort of technically on, you know, uh, Route 66, and seeing my first, you know, real tornado up, up very close. But the other thought I had was... Um, uh, Franz Kafka is, is a hugely important writer to me. And I think to you, well, to many people, um, his last unfinished novel, America, which is, I think a beautiful, uh, imaginary dream journey, um, ends with a, a chapter called the nature theater of Oklahoma, which, mm-hmm. um, is one of his, uh, was one of his most f- treasured things that he had written. And, uh, Max Brod, who, who you know, is his great friend who saved his manuscripts when he was asked to burn them, uh, reports that Kafka really enjoyed reading that last section. Um, and for people who don't know, I mean, Kafka, he didn't travel much in actual life. But he was deeply fascinated with the romance and, to some extent, what I think you could call the grotesqueness of America. That He, mm-hmm. he loves stories of Native Americans and Benjamin Franklin, which I think is kind of humorous to me. Um, but the, the, this last incomplete book was, to me, an emblem of his whole life vision. You know, it's about an innocent, uh, a, a confused individual arriving in, in the vastness of America and dealing with, at least in his mind, um, the physical hugeness, but also the symbolic hugeness. Um, but the Nature Theatre of Oklahoma, for, for people who don't know, he, he imagines it as a limitless theatre with employment for everyone, something like a, a kind of surreal bl- blend of... Uh, the WPA from the Depression era, sort of an open air Cirque du Soleil, and I don't know, maybe in more contemporary terms, Burning Man. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I wondered if how that surreal sense of, of Oklahoma, uh, you know, from someone's imagination who had never been, that was the part of America that he reached out to. And I wonder how that ties in with your experience and also kind of what you were saying about the Flaming Lips.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think Kafka nailed it. They're, in my novels, uh, the second, like Black Gum and Low Down Death Right Easy, uh, now Blood and Water, they all have these like short vignettes in which we are introduced to strange weirdo characters that have no real purpose to the plot outside of creating this general air of strangeness. And people found these books very surreal, but what they don't realize is that I made very little of it up. Um, so today, for example, where I live, so I live about two blocks from very low income housing and a soup kitchen. And so I essentially look out my window It's says, there's actually a very beautiful light rain going on right now, but I look outside my window and I will just see folks pass by. And these folks are people who do not have a lot of money, uh, who like to get fucked up. But who have a kind of uh, sort of beautiful freedom about them. So I saw a guy walk by today, for example, and he squatted down and appeared to pick something up, but I don't think he grabbed anything. And then he stood up tall and held it up to the sky and then sort of stretched his arms out and just continued walking. Now, what's that about? I don't know. Yeah, what was it about? (laughs) Who the fuck knows, (laughs) but it feels, it feels good. It feels right. You know, I was walking back from the gym the other day. So last episode, if you'll remember, I encountered a a shirtless man in the street, uh, and I was walking down that same road and I see in the distance, a sort of man who's perhaps in his sixties, maybe seventies, white guy, uh, sunburned with crazy dark Brown, white hair, and he's walking towards me and he's just laughing to himself about something in a not in like a creepy possessed way but as though a friend just told him a joke and then he sees me walking towards him and he immediately you know straightens up zips his lips and and walks past me without giggling anymore and the giggling resumes after he passes me so this guy knows that not everybody can hear the voices he's very well aware of what's going on right but he seemed to be enjoying it, and this is something that I've had a difficult time articulating. But my time in Portland was spent around a lot of homeless people, so you would think that there's this there's this uh, there's this link between being surrounded by homeless people and and surrealness, right? So Portland is the notorious home of the Bizarros, and they get all that kind of stuff out of that. But when I was in Portland, the homeless people that I encountered were usually growling and barking. It, sort of like they were halfway through transforming into a werewolf or something like that, like very kind of unpleasant, nasty spitting and screaming and and things of that nature here to bring it back to Kafka, right? There seems to be a much more kind of circus atmosphere. There's an old man who drives by on a little golf cart and the golf cart is completely decked out in tchotchkes of all different types of things. He's glued all these different refrigerator magnets to it and crepe paper streamers are flying behind it and he's got little signs attached. It's this, it's this very strange, almost like a snake oil salesman moving caravan that he just sort of, I think he just drives it to go get beer and then goes home. I can see Um, it
1: in my mind, but
0: there's a kind of manifestation of this type of poverty is the wrong word. It's, it's, it's closer. There, there can be a freedom in not having a ton of money. If your goals in life are small, uh, the way that I think a lot of these peoples are, uh, if your goal is to wake up, hang out with your friends, get messed up, and just be let your freak flag fr- fly, that's a hard thing to say. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> For a good reason, I think.
0: I think so too. I think that Oklahoma is a, it is a very generative circus-like atmosphere. There's, there's kind of a so-it-goes mentality to the whole thing. And when you have that, when you're in a sense of place and you're with this very strange spirit of land that kind of possesses everybody who enters into it, I think it's just this never-ending font of creativity
1: Okay, look, what you've said just gives me three sort of things that triggered in my mind. The, the, the first deals with, uh, you know, and I've been in cities like Portland and Seattle, and, you know, I, there are many others that could be. There seems to me a kind of self-consciousness to the circus environment. I mean, the last time I was in Berkeley, I walked across, uh, which is where I'm from, the, uh, you know, University of California campus. And it seemed like there were a lot of people working very hard to look weird and to be strange Mm -hmm. and to Mm -hmm. create the sense of circus. And rather than Kafka's idea of the nature theater of Oklahoma, which is a kind of beautiful imaginative uh, idea that has no boundaries, that sort of is bigger than the world. I felt like some of the circus environment of, of, you know, some of these so-called cool cities actually seems very limiting and, a little bit too intentional to be taken seriously. Would you agree with that?
0: Right. Yes. No, a hundred percent. Because there's a difference between somebody who is covered in tattoos that makes them look like a lizard. Or even, you remember when we were walking around Vegas, all the performers there, right, who are supposed to be Jack Sparrow and Spider-Man, and we encountered a, a midget, Mr. T., on our on our walks there. And that was very surreal and very interesting, but there's there is something a bit more laid back here. Here you're more likely to see somebody, you know, sitting on their porch wearing a ball cap that says women want me fish fear me, but then, you know, you look at the porch, <laughs> I want just, one of those.
1: <laughs>
0: you look at the porch and it's just nothing but rocking horses, you know? And that's a much more subtle and I think external manifestation of an actual interest in those things, right? So a porch that's full of rocking horses is probably because, for whatever reason, that por- they either build them or they just really enjoy them and they enjoy collecting them. So there's this difference between um, a bookshelf that is meant to be prominently displayed in the living room and the occult books that you keep under your bed, does nice make, like, that, I understand that yep that's what I that's what I would say is the difference between these these two places there is there is a performative aspect of weirdness that I think is absolutely antithetical to actual weirdness for example I never get the impression that David Lynch thinks that he's
1: weird I think that's absolutely right <laughs> I think that's absolutely right um, I think he thinks but he's going about his business you know
0: yep. Yeah, I think because you'll see it in his everyday life. I mean, the man's been doing the weather reports on Twitter uh, for the past few years, and he'll just be, he'll say things like, it's going to be a beautiful day. He's just doing the weather reports. And I get the impression that he does that because he likes doing that. You know, he likes smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee and painting. And there is this kind of, um, there's a great quote from Lynch where he says, every time I do an interview after I have a new film come out, people want me to talk about the movie. And then he starts to laugh and he says, but the, the movie is the talking.
1: Right. Right. And
0: uh, and I think that when you encounter uh, a performative strangeness, those are meant as conversation starters. If, even if the conversation is only in your own head. Um, But I think that the people of Oklahoma by their sort of presence and actions, that is the talking. If, the, if that works, I think it works.
1: Yeah. Now, I want to get back to a point you mentioned about, uh, the you know, tattoos, which are, you know, a big thing in American culture, a big thing in hipster culture, what remains. Uh, it's certainly one of the things you think about in places like Portland, for instance. And that makes me think of um, the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, which is one of the great rivers of the world. Um, it's the longest river uh, in uh, on the island of New Guinea. Um, and it's an amazing thing from the air. It plumes out silt 60 miles into the Bismarck mm. Sea. Um, and the people who live alongside it um, are heavily committed and identify with crocodiles. Um, mm. And their ritual initiation for young men is not just to be tattooed. It's to be, you know, scarified, you know, uh, to look like crocodiles. Um, And it's very intense. It's very painful. Um, It's very beautiful as a physical art form. Um, But it's a long way from any tattoo process because um, they're not doing it to look different and individual. They're looking at it as a, a means of communing with their totemic spirit animal Um, and crocodiles are really serious business there. Um, I've seen them. They're, you know, they can run 15 feet. Um, Just
0: enormous creatures. Yeah.
1: And I wonder what you think about that. Cause what we're looking at with people like that, they're not tattooing in this, if you want to call it that, it's a little bit deeper than that. So certainly (laughs) deeper than skin deep. Um, And it's a permanent uh, ritual Uh, tribalization scar that identifies these people forever um, and centers them magically in their world. Is the difference between that and going to, say, a Portland or Austin tattoo parlor, not just the pain of it, but the kind of the cultural commitment to it?
0: Well, it goes back to exploring versus expressing, doesn't it? So I think that this is a great way to bring it back to that point we made in the first episode About tattoos being in a in a way an art that can be exploratory or it can be expressive. So I have tattoos. I have tattoos, and you know I have the swallow from swallow down press, and I have the broken river symbol, and I have a tattoo from one of my favorite uh, comic books. Um, I promise I am an adult. (laughs) This is a very good comic book, Um, but those are all expressive. Those are things that I got at the time that were meant to sort of express who I was. Now, there are two other tattoos that I had uh, done by my friend Eric because he got a tattoo gun. And when your buddy gets a tattoo gun, you drink a bunch of whiskey and have him tattoo sort of whatever. And (laughs) I think that those are a bit more exploratory. When people ask me to explain the, the skull smoking a blunt on my arm or the... The dollar sign with snakes around it on my leg, I have to admit that I don't really know what I was trying to express at that time.
1: That's an <laughs> interesting point about, that's a very interesting point, I think, for all writers to think about is sometimes what you don't understand is what has the most meaning longer term. Right. Uh, I I think that's a really, uh, really interesting point. Um, One other thing that you mentioned, which ties back to the physical sensory experience of home and uh, your home of Oklahoma, you mentioned that it's, there's a light rain happening now, which uh, you know, I instantly could smell that. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and I have only been in Oklahoma a few times and I'm obviously kind of imagining that in some way as Kafka was But then I thought of the phrase Oklahoma rain. And to me, that just has more resonance, uh, just as as language, than, say, Kansas rain, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of an arbitrary thing. But I wonder if, to what extent, our sense of home also, and not just because we're writers, uh, but, but that certainly is accentuated if that links back to places where the language, the sound of things uh, resonates with us, what do you think about that?
0: Oh, that's great. No, I love that. Yeah, I mean, and as writers, this would be the sort of direction that we would go in. I've been very much enjoying reading writing that is concerned with the way that the words look on the page. Uh, Too few people... Really seem to give much of a shit about what their words actually look like on a page. There's this very utilitarian, uh, plot based, you know, ever marching forward towards climax, you know, a very masculine kind of thing, actually. Uh, This woman, Jane Allison, wrote a book called Meander, Spiral, Explode that goes into different narrative forms beyond the ones that we have right now, which she calls hyper masculine because, you know, it builds up to a climax. And then once the climax happens, It's over. Sounds a little bit like dudes, you know? Mm. So she was talking about, uh, you know, how these patterns in nature can be reflected in writing. That might be a digression, but no, the actual sounds of the words themselves do have a kind of resonance. That's why there are magic words. That's why if you read the Greek magical papyri and you're doing, you know, a working out of the PGM, it's probably the most effective to learn a little bit of Greek. Because there's something about an incantation about the magic words. You know, this has been a point that's been made in a bunch of different places. So this is certainly not a thought that arose, you know, organically in my head, but they do call the act of creating words spelling, you know, like spelling and spell are the same thing. So I would a hundred percent agree that words like Texas have resonance, right? I feel like Texas with that hard X right in the middle of it does a lot of work. It makes you think of cattle guards and cowboys and dust and you know, a, a place that is crossed out maybe from the rest of the country, right? like it's, it's, it's people who separate themselves. I've always felt a strong current of separatism in Texas. And Oklahoma is fundamentally a beautiful word, Yes, With all due is. respect to Kansas, Musical. Kansas is not a beautiful word, right? right. <laughs> it's kind of like Rhode Island. You know? right. It's, just, it's yeah. not not a very pretty sound. Oklahoma has music to it. It, it, it evokes a lot of things, um, not because of all of the different sort of cultural baggage that we've put on Oklahoma as a place, but because the word itself is evocative. It's, it's just pure music.
1: Do you think that one I mean, one of the things that, that I really strive for in, in every art that I work on, but, but certainly in writing, and, and certainly when it comes to uh, the teaching I do, is to make people more aware that they in, in the music of words is the meaning. The meaning isn't this ghost separate thing. Uh, which it often is, obviously, conceptually, but to try to ground people back into the music, the physicality of words, in whatever language we're working in, you know? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, could not agree more with that. It's basically, if you even take the example of putting three or four words together. So there's the adage that you don't want to use too many adjectives in, in your prose, but rules are meant to be broken. Um, I think there's a lot of power in writing if you're trying to describe something and without any punctuation at all, you place three or four words together that don't have to work grammatically, but that are just meant to uh, sort of create, those four words create their own new word that you begin to understand. Like the Germans do this all the time. They put two words together and it's a brand new word. Um, We don't do that as much in English, but I think in prose it can be very effective because you're, you're it's, it's, it's like a difference between writing horizontally and writing vertically and creating these little sinkholes of meaning that people are instantly recognizing by its cadence and proximity to each other. Um, that is, that's when writing becomes artful and interesting and confounding rather than a means to convey a series of events.
1: Right. Well, you know, I think that's one of the great uh, reasons that that writers in English should really reach out to uh, other languages to, even if they are um, tourists, so to speak, to get back to that word, in other languages, they, they gain some other perspectives. I think that was one of the key things about, for me, about, you know, living overseas was just becoming more attentive to Uh, the sound of words, even if I didn't understand them, you know? Mm, mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: And that's an inroad to the the cultural mindscape behind the languages.
0: Oh, yeah. No, learning a new language, it gives you a much broader impression of the world. What you're saying is so fascinating to me because now I'm thinking about my own writing and thinking about this idea of, you know, very carefully, if you're looking for a word – yeah, going to different languages. And I wonder if that might be construed as cultural appropriation or not, but to just sort of find these words and place them in for their, not literal meaning, but for their musical quality, you know? And, and maybe even at times spelling them phonetically. If, if the way that the, sometimes the way that a word looks can be beautiful and you don't want to do that. But if you're looking for how it sounds in a person's head, This is a very interesting and, I think, completely untapped direction for writing to go in, you know, becoming a a true sort of, you know, citizen of the world. You know, like languages are there to be utilized and to create a new thing. This is a very kind of fascinating and spontaneous thing that we've come upon here.
1: Well, you know, it, it one of the reasons that I love uh, the Melanesian languages, which are all sort of derived from from talk pigeon, which is um, it spelled T-O-K-P-I-S-I-N. Uh, but one, I mean, I just I always find interesting words, uh, you know, for instance, the word wrong in English. You know what their their version of that is? What? Cranky, as in K-R-I-N-K-I. And I love yeah. that, you know, it's right. just so, it's kind of intuitive, you know, it's a little bit mm-hmm. childlike, but but I think in a good way, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a video that I saw online of a woman from Haiti and a woman from Jamaica, and they were going back and forth and saying what the different words were for different things. Uh, and it's fascinating. I wish I could think of a exact example of one of the things that they talked about, but it's just like the way that you like, sometimes it just makes more sense. Like they've done things with language that we've been kind of conservative about here in America. You know, we're we're not, we're not quick to adapt new slang words. And if we do, there's always this smug sense of irony that I can't stand of, of like, you know, uh, we'll start using words like fam instead of family. You know, yeah. and and it just feels smug and weird and natural when black people use it, but then strange when it's when it's appropriated. So there's that word again. Um, but like an honest fascination with language and an honest exploration of it. And oh, you know what? This reminds me of um, this reminds me of something Connor Habib said recently. Because his big thing is to break out of these mimetic patterns that we're in because of the internet. Like he, and I share this sentiment with him 100%, hates it when people use phrases that they've heard over and over again on Twitter, right? For example, like, you hate to see it, you know? And people just repeat this, you hate to see it, you hate to see it. So he suggested, at the risk of looking like a real weirdo, uh, for example, walking out of a film and saying something to the effect of, like, that film was like breathing sulfur right like nice. trying trying to speak metaphorically and artistically um instead of trying to put it in this sort of very rigid language that we have so th- that's kind of what this reminds me of you know going searching for the for the words that are closer metaphorically to what you actually feel
1: well maybe one way to sort of uh kind of round things up is that when we look at places that that have that sense of magical home, I wonder if that's because they allow us to more personally experience it, but to also connect with it. Um, and I was thinking of, you know, the, the, something that I think everyone notices at some point, but writers particularly, is that oftentimes when we misunderstand something, it's so much more interesting than what the literal meaning was. I was thinking of this little boy, a friend of mine's son, um, and he listens very closely to his parents. And um, the dad had said, you know, when I'm in my workshop, I'm I'm in my element. Mm-hmm. And the little boy who's about five said, uh, when I'm in the backyard, I'm in my elephant. Mm. You know? And I just thought, mm-hmm. I want to be in my elephant more than, yeah. you know? I mean, that's that's great. That's where... Um, and Walker Percy, who I mentioned earlier, has a beautiful essay, which uh, is in a book called Message in the Bottle, called mm-hmm. Metaphor is Mistake, you mm-hmm. know, of how a lot of, of, of poetry uh, and the magic and the music of words comes from, from mishearing things. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. don't, I mean, I always find that, that when I misunderstand <laughs> something, it's so much more interesting than what the literal meaning was often, you know?
0: One hundred percent. That is that is a great note. I think to end this particular ep- episode on. I like this journey that we're taking together and me where, where it's going. It's sort of uh, you know we put a lot of thought into these episodes, but this one in particular, especially in its last quarter, went to places that we didn't even plan. But I think it's beautiful. I think it's generative and interesting. So thanks once again for for doing this with me.
1: Thank you, thank you. I I, uh, I look forward to this weekly, and I, I think that this we're going on an interesting journey, and I hope that other people find that of interest. Um, we've got a lot more things to talk about. I mean, we're only doing you know think about all the interesting conversations we have that we don't record. You know, um, oh,
0: yeah. oh yeah, yeah, those porch are, talk, those are, yeah, th- those are those are more those are definitely porch talk for sure. But it's. Uh, It's part of this, too. It'll all find its way in uh, at a certain point. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again, Chris. And uh, tune in next week where we're going to just pick this ball up and keep running with it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.